Hello, friends. Welcome to the Laity Podcast. This is Andrew, episode 14, with a very special guest, Keith Giles. Keith, how's it going, man? Well, hey, guys. How you doing? Uh, I'm doing great. I'm sitting here in a McDonald's in El Paso, Texas, uh, visiting my family in Texas, um, but I normally live in Orange County, but uh, I'm glad we could do this. I'm glad that you guys were willing to work with me here. Oh, absolutely. And I was telling Stephen before, I'm curious, You, pro- I don't know if you know, but I've, I've been stranded in El Paso once or twice. I may or may not have hitchhiked across the country and got stranded in El Paso and met a friend <laughs> at a McDonald's. And so I'm, I'm just curious if we somehow have a, a spirit connection where actually you're, you're walking the path that I once walked as a young, um, less intelligent man. Wow. You know, for all I know, I'm sitting in the exact McDonald's <laughs> that you were in all those years ago. I love it's it. Didn't, didn't you carve your name into the bench or something? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Keith, look uh, under the bench really quick. <laughs> <laughs> there, you'll find, yeah, you'll find a book, follow the instructions. Um, yeah. And so, so you're, you're in Orange County and, and is that where you're, are you from California originally? Is that what you said? No, actually, um, well, I was born in Tennessee. I grew up in Texas most of my life. So like junior high, all the way through college. And that's where I met my wife, Wendy, in El Paso, Texas. And then um, we, yeah, we just, we actually moved to California about 25 years ago. And then our boys were born there. Um, So that tells you how old they are. They're both almost out of college now. And uh, yeah, that's where we've been in, in Orange County, California for about 25 years and doing house church and stuff like that. Awesome. Awesome. Well, we yeah, I, I want to give our listeners a bit of an intro here. Keith is an author of a number of books, one of which we're, we're going to talk about today. Um, he's he's deeply tied into a Christian community out there on the West Coast that we're going to hear all about. And in full disclosure, we don't go like super far back. I was actually on Brian Zahn's blog uh, a couple, actually probably a month ago now, and he Brian wrote the foreword to your latest book, Jesus Unbound, which we're going to talk about a little bit and um pretty much anyone that that brian uh sponsors i'm i'm re- I'm, I'm ready to check out um uh, and so i immediately um dove into to some of the material and then pretty quickly reached out to keith to come on as a guest and so um we're, we're gonna talk about the book but keith i was gonna ask what, what is your connection to brian did you did you have a mutual connection there or just reach out based on after writing the book yeah so you know what um Brian is someone uh, I've only recently connected to, um, and uh, I think I read the first. I read his book uh, *Farewell to Mars* a couple years ago and loved it, and then just started following him. And then I read *Sinners in the Hands of a Loving God*, which you know came out about a year ago, and that really blew me away. And when I sat down to write *Jesus Unbound*, you know I have a dream list, and the top of the number one, you know. A person on my list to write the foreword to this book was Brian Zahn, and I was hoping he was going to say yes, but I, you know, I didn't really have a connection to him. So when I reached out to him and I asked him about it and told him what the book was about, he said yes. I was so excited. So, awesome. Yeah, it meant a lot to me that he was willing to do that, and I was and uh, and he wrote an amazing foreword. He's been really good to me. That's awesome. That's fantastic. Well, Keith, walk us through, if you don't mind, we, lo- we love to have our, our guests on uh, to not only talk about what they're doing today, but some, some of their story, where they came from, both sort of the, the spiritual uh, spiritual roots, church roots. roots uh, would love to kind of hear some of that story and then maybe even walk us up through what got you into writing. And uh, we'll, we'll be sure to interrupt and interject along the way. But, but just to start, even growing up, curious kind of what, what tradition, you, if any, you came up through. Yeah, well, um, I early on, I think I always believed in God. My family did not go to church when I was very young, um, but I feel like I always kind of talked to God, which is funny because I, I don't know why. I guess I just knew there was a God. Maybe uh, I think maybe, but it was like my parents did the whole, you know, hey, it's time to go to bed. Let's say our prayers. Now I lay me down to sleep. I pray the Lord my soul to keep kind of thing. But I just took that really seriously and always talked to God. And um, we moved from Tennessee to Texas when I was in like second grade. We almost became Mormons. Uh, Almost became Mormons? (laughs) Oh, yeah. We were on track to become Mormons, yes. Uh, We had, we were sort of in this spiritual, I think my parents were in this sort of spiritual quest. Uh, So we went we visited like a Methodist church and we went to some Baptist churches. And then we had a couple of Mormon kids come by our house, you know, on the bikes. And we just started, you know, we were listening to them and getting to know them. And 
we, we even visited a Mormon church. My dad had a coworker who was Mormon. We went to their house and kind of watched their family go through what they call family home evening, uh, which is a very, it's a very family-based kind of a thing. And yeah, I can remember all of that. Like This is like second grade, third grade. And, um, and then all, all of a sudden, one night, we were sitting there with the, those two Mormon guys, uh, and my dad just stood up and said, I don't know what triggered him, but something triggered him, and he stood up and said, this isn't the God I believe in. Get out of my house. And uh, Wow. Yeah, it was like a big shock. Um, and then somehow we ended up at this little, this little tiny church. It was a lighthouse free will Baptist church in Eagle Pass, Texas, and things just kind of clicked. You know what I mean? Uh, for me, I uh, my question suddenly got answered about who God was and what we needed to do to know Him. And uh, I, you know, I had a profession of faith. My mom and dad did as well. We were baptized together, uh, all three of us, and. So we were Southern, but then we became Southern Baptist a little bit, a little bit after that. And I was licensed and ordained Southern Baptist about 28 years ago here in El Paso. Oh, well, as a, as like a pastor, what is that? What is that? Or as a minister, what does that entail? Yeah, it's a license and ordination is, um, yeah, as a minister. So I was a music minister. Originally I was a music pastor, you know, whatever, at a Baptist church. And then I did youth ministry, uh, at another church after that, uh, and, you know, it basically means I can marry people and bury people and all that stuff. Got it. Got it. And so you, you, and then so we're pretty involved. Like, did you stay, were you ever kind of in ministry as a kind of full-time yeah, paid on staff? Like that, that's my gig. So that that's what you were doing? Yeah. So I, I kind of went back and forth. So early on when I got licensed and ordained, um, I was working. I was going to college at the time, so I was was working at the Baptist bookstore, but I was also, uh, like I said, a music minister, and then later right. on a youth minister at a church, Southern Baptist Church. Then I went into sales. I worked for a Christian music distribution company, and that's what moved me to California, uh, working for Diamante Music. And, oh. uh, yeah, have you guys knew who that is? You ever heard of that? No, them? I haven't. So, yeah, that was back in the 90s when Christian alternative rock music was, like, really good music. It was really good. And uh, so I worked for a company that distributed Tooth and Nail Records. It was there uh, very when they first got started. Yeah, I know Tooth and Nail like very very well. Small world. Oh. I played in a I played in a band in high school and like Tooth and Nail. The so I'm not going to get into all this because I could kind of geek out <laughs> down the rabbit hole. But I so our record we did a couple of records. One which yeah. was produced by I don't know if you know you know Aaron Sprinkle or Jesse Sprinkle. Oh, yes. So oh, yes. Do. I know them. I know those guys. That's awesome. So Aaron and Jesse are brothers. Aaron's, I guess, yes. was like the biggest producer at Tooth and Nail at the time when all those bands were huge. So Jesse, who's his brother who lives in, in New York, um, Jesse produced our record and we were really good. So I grew up in Philadelphia. Jesse produced our record and uh, he's, I just, I loved him. He's just like the man. And yeah. we, we quickly, we're not going to, our, our listeners have heard some of my story, but we kind of by the time 2007, 2008-ish, um, kind of realized it wasn't for us and things were kind of in an interesting place to end up not going that path, but no, we know those folks pretty well. Oh yeah. Jesse, uh, I wrote, so small world. So, uh, I wrote, the, I wrote the poor old Lou bio for frontline, uh, records when they, when they got signed to frontline. No way. Yeah. Frontline hired me and paid me to write their bio, their official band bio. For yeah. Lou. I got to hang out with those guys and I just love them. That and, is so uh, funny. And, and I'm still friends with Jesse. I think I connected with Jesse more than anybody else. And I called him Nature Boy because everything he ate was like all healthy and fruit yeah. and nothing artificial. And like, so I was like, dude, you're like Nature Boy. You couldn't just eat a cheeseburger, you know? Everything had to be. Oh, yeah. that's, you're bringing me back. I haven't talked to Jesse in forever. And so now we got we to gotta make the connection. If only this was a music podcast. Um, no, but that, 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 that's fascinating. <laughs> Wow. All of all, of, me and Keith are geeking out. All our listeners are like, "Wait, what is this?" Uh, whatever. Uh, whatever. Um, so you're so you're working for these these Christian the music distributor, um, and at what point? You know, obviously, you I, I would imagine. Well, I won't give away what we're going to get into, but when did uh, kind of when you think about some of the more deconstructive questions coming up, when, when did things start to shift for you? Do you have kind of a clear focus on when what you always thought might have, you know, not, no longer worked or how, how do you describe kind of that, that path and that story? Yeah. So it was, um, 
Yeah, I can kind of put my finger on when things for me started to shift and, and the paradigm started shifting. For me, the big aha moment, the big, the big sort of um, the ripples in the pond that are still going started when, um, okay, so let me time-wise, let me think of when this was. This was about, about 15 years ago. I was, uh, I was writing a column for Relevant Magazine. It was an online column, and it was called Subversive. And I pitched them this idea that I would interview different people, and I would write articles as well. And, um, and they, they said, yeah, let's do it. So I interviewed this guy, and uh, I asked him this question. It was my very first interview, for the very first, you know, I just started doing it. So the first guy I interviewed, and I asked him the question, what do you think is wrong with the church in America today, the biggest problem? And his answer was, he said, well, it's, I think it's that Christians in America fundamentally misunderstand the gospel. Because he says, you know, the gospel is not about saying a prayer so you can go to heaven when you die. Now, I, I was licensed under date as a minister. And I had been serving in churches up, you know, at that point for probably almost 10 years. And that's the first anyone had ever told me that. And wow. I was like, what? So he sort of just blew my mind with this idea that, well, the, go the good news— of the gospel as Jesus communicates it in the gospels of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John uh, is this, repent, metanoia, think differently, change your mind, change the way you think. Uh, the kingdom of God is within you. The kingdom of God is at hand. It's here now. You don't have to wait until you're dead to experience what it's like to live under the rule and reign of God right now. And and it just like blew my mind. And I, it was like I needed to start over. And honestly, that was 15 years ago. And I, and I, everything after that, it was like this explosion. And everything after that just rearranged all the furniture in my heart and my mind of like, what is this all about? So can I ask, can I cut you out? I yeah, cut you off and just yeah. ask, would I know who who was the person you asked that to? Was this a random person? Or was it an artist? <laughs> no. So uh, I, I don't see the name because most people won't know his name, but. But I'll say his name. It is, it's not a big deal. It's not a secret. So his name was Todd Hunter. And uh, at the time in the emerging church movement, again, this was like, in, you know, uh, during the emerging movement, um, he was he was sort of a guy. He came out of the vineyard. Uh, he left okay. the vineyard movement. And then he worked with a group called Alelon for a while. Uh, he planted some house churches, I think, in Boise. Uh, um, the, the ironic thing is now he's abandoned all that and he's an Anglican priest. No way. <laughs> Wow. That yeah. is funny. But at, but at the time, he blew my mind with that. Totally. And then he, he turned me on to Dallas Willard, which is where I think he got it from. And then uh, I, and I ended up interviewing Dallas Willard twice, which is one of my favorite things in the world that wow. I got to. I had, I had an opportunity to talk to Dallas Willard on the phone twice. I published two interviews with him. One of them, by the way, just got published in a new book, uh, which is a collection of, of interviews with Dallas Willard, and they just published it. Um, so that was a blast. And so Dallas really helped to explain more of what this looked like, you know, to follow Jesus with your actual life. And so by starting to ask those questions, I started realizing that most of Christianity as I knew it was about praying a prayer that doesn't exist in the Bible, that Jesus or the apostles never used, um, that, you know, <laughs> all these assumptions that I had were wrong and I needed to go back and start over. Mm. And, that's, and that's what I've been doing. And I feel like Pretty much everything I've done since then has been about what I've discovered as I've kind of gone back and retraced my steps. How did those things affect your your life and, and the Christian community? I mean, were you already in house church, or was did you then make the shift to house church, or did it did it affect how you guys did where your what you were doing? Yeah. So when that happened to me, um, I I was um, I was on staff at a vineyard church that. My wife and I and some friends of ours had helped to start. We planted it from scratch, and we'd never done that before. And, that, and honestly, it was a great experience. I, you know, It was a wonderful experience to actually start a church from scratch like that. And we loved doing it. And we were doing children's ministry and compassion ministry, which was to the poor in the community there in our town. And um, so right about the time this rocked my world and I started like rethinking everything, uh, and we were already serving the poor. Well, for, so the key thing that happened was I started realizing that Christianity was about discipleship to Christ. It was about following Jesus. So I just started reading the Sermon on the Mount. And who, what are the things that Jesus said he wanted his disciples to do? Well, one of those things was to care for the poor, which we were already doing, but it became even more important to us. And then um, I, this was also sort of another paradigm shift for me. I read that 
this article by a guy named Ray Mayhew. It's a little PDF, like a 40-page uh, article that I came across somehow. And the name of the article is uh, Embezzlement, the Corporate Sin of American Christianity. And all, all it is, wow. is he went back. Yeah, it's a powerful title. He went back to early church history, starting in the book of Acts, but then going through, you know, first, second, third century uh, church fathers and like Tertullian and, you know, all these guys, Arrhenius and all these guys. And, 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 and just documented how caring for the poor was the DNA, was the heart of the, of the early Christian church. You know, it wasn't a small thing. It was really probably one of the most major things. So right about this time, had this, you know, had the, had the Todd Hunter, Dallas Willard, the gospel isn't what I thought it was, Epiphany. Then, then read this article by Ray Mayhew about the DNA of the church is caring for the poor. And then my wife and I, about that time, felt like God was saying that he wanted our family to leave the church we were at and to start to plant a new church. And in the beginning, we thought it would just kind of be another vineyard church. So we, we prayed about it, and we said, okay, God, will do that. But then the next thing that happened after we said, okay, God, will do that, was we felt like God say, okay, then this church I'm calling you to start will keep nothing. All the money will be given away to the poor in the community, 100%. We won't keep even, you know, we would keep no money for coffee, donuts, you know, mm. renting a building, sound systems, salaries, nothing. Like all of the offering goes to the poor in the community. And that, that was that was scary. That was big. You know, we were excited about it, but we were also like, how in the world did we pull that off? And, and I always say we backed into house church because that's why we ended up doing a house church. The only way for us to pull that off was <laughs> right. that if I got somewhere else and we met in houses, right? So right. Every, we had a, people in the church had houses, so we meet in homes and I just get a job like everybody else. So that that's what I did. And that was about 11 years ago. Uh, we left, we did exactly that. We started a house church that gives away 100% of the offering to the poor in the community. I don't take a salary. No one takes a salary. And uh, and that's what we've been doing. And I love it. It's wow. just been the best thing I've done. How, how many people are in your community? So right now, we've gone through seasons over the 11 years, right? So we started off, we were probably like 35 or so uh, people with, it was lots of families with little kids, so it was a lot of chaos, it was insane. Oh, yeah. Uh, and then, oh, yeah. And then, and then, and then, yeah, so then we, went, then we went through a phase where we had a lot of older people, and, and my wife and I were the, were the kids, we were the young ones, and all these other people were wow. very old. And, and, um, and then we went through a phase just recently where my wife and I were the old people. We were the mentors. We were the old, you know, elders. And everybody in the group were like millennials. And that was the best. Oh, my gosh. The, this just the sweetest season we've ever had. So so here's what I'm getting. I'm going to answer your question. You asked a very simple question. I'm giving you a long No, answer. this is good. So, yeah, so, what good. Ended, so what ended up happening was we, we had the, the phase with the younger millennials, which, again, was the sweetest time we've ever had. That lasted for about two and a half years, and just recently, I mean, just in the past few months, um, one by one, we've seen a lot of these millennials, like, respond to callings to, like, I, I feel like God's calling me to leave and start another house church, or God's calling me to leave and go and, and partner with these other people to do a, a ministry over here. So one by one, these beautiful, amazing people, uh, God has sort of been, like, commissioning them, and we've been sending them out, and so now we're kind of, we're a small group now, we're probably now at about, like, probably like six people. So we're kind of in this, you know, again, there, there's so much change and fluctuation and right. kind of these episodes. Right. So that's the season we're in right now. I, I have a couple questions on that. And I want to park on house churches for a little bit, because I think it's fascinating. You, we don't often get to talk to folks who have kind of, who are doing that and, and have done it over a period of time. Not like, Oh yeah, yeah. we're doing house church. And we started six months ago. Um, Stephen <laughs> and I, and some of our listeners will know this, but so Stephen and I were a part of the same house church community in Atlanta for probably about a year and a half, two years. And then Stephen ended up moving back to Athens and I've been doing the house church thing close to four um, years. And it, it, it's, it's interesting. What I always tell people is when I was in a traditional church structure, just structurally, um, I romanticize that house church would be the greatest possible model because everyone right. is everyone's forced to contribute in the best way. People, you'll finally have quote unquote community. Um, we won't have to spend money on buildings, like, and a lot of this probably can be true. But then you get in house church, and you're in someone's living room, and there's 
there's 15 adults and seven kids and one toddler who might as well be four kids and himself screaming. Yeah. Yeah. And it yeah. is absolutely, and, and unless you train yourself, it can be what uh, our house church leader at the time would call like a, a beautiful chaos where it's just like yeah. this madness. Yeah. And, yeah. and so it, it's really interesting because right. for me, it, it became, it really did get real. It's like, okay, uh, the, here's the, the reality is, I am forced to contribute something. I'm forced to actually show up and participate. So I have a question behind all of this, which is number kind of a twofold. Number one, when you guys started, then were most people, and even still today, I'm curious where people who are a part of your house church are coming from. Are these people that have been in big church that are coming from your exact scenario? Or I'll let you answer that. And then kind of a part two is... How has, for those who have been with you or even that you've seen over years of time in or out, um, describe kind of the transformation that takes place in, in, in that kind of community and, and how, if you speak for yourself or even maybe what you've seen amongst folks that have been a part of that. Yeah. Well, you know, <clears throat> the, the cross-section is pretty wide. I mean, again, we've done this 11 years, so over the years we've had all kinds kinds of people come from all kinds of different backgrounds, denominations. Some of them were in leadership or on staff. Some of them were just church people who attended church who just kind of got, got burned out on it. Um, we've had people who got it, who totally got what we were doing and understood it, and this is what they were hungry for. We have people who didn't understand what it was at all, who thought it was a Bible study or thought it was like a basically what happens on Sunday morning in a traditional church, but in my living room. Exactly. Uh, yeah, and they call me pastor. <laughs> And they wondered when we were going to get a building, and um, you know, like, <laughs> who's going to do the sermon? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. exactly. And, then, and then we're upset, of course, when there was no sermon and there was no Bible study, and, and there was no youth. Is it a church? What is this? <laughs> yeah. This is a fringe group. Yes, that's right. Yeah, and so you know, you get all you get this incredible cross section. I just what I started doing was, um, and again, I just learned it over. I made a lot of mistakes. But, but what I started learning to do was when new people, even just if they just emailed me or, or contacted me and said, hey, I'm curious about visiting and curious about being a part of it. Um, I mean, I would just meet with them and give them, here's what we're not. And we're not this yeah. and we're not that. And this is what we're about. And set their expectation so that they understood as much as possible. Sometimes it still didn't matter. Right. Um, but, you know, you do what you can to help people understand what it is and what it isn't. And, um, yeah, so anyway, I... I've had all kinds, and I've uh, again, I've made my share of mistakes, and we've learned a lot in the process of it. Keith, I'm I'm curious. Do you think that, like, as America sort of continues on a on a on a, a post-Christian trajectory, so we're sort of moving uh, moving beyond, you know, being a, a, a quote American nation um, or a, a Christian nation? Uh, all right, do you think we're going to see more and more of those type of house church things? I mean, it seems like it's going to be hard. It's going to be hard to keep the lights on on all these buildings yeah. uh, mm. when there's like one on every corner. And yeah. and and it's going to – I work in healthcare, and I'm kind of wondering if we're going to see sort of what happens like with hospitals. Like you're going to have basically like the the, the Walmartization of, of, of churches – uh, yep. So you'll have the big ones, and that's where you get like the the killer music, the fog machines, the face melting guitar solos, Woo! yeah, all that stuff. Holograms, don't uh, forget. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, and then you'll have the kind of fringe is kind of the other side, and, of then, that. and then you'll have the house churches. Yeah, yeah. Well, you know, uh, so here's the thing, and uh, this is exactly right. I, I wrote a blog about this just the other day, but but um, I think what you're going to see, I don't know, I don't know if if where people are going to end up would would necessarily. Some of them might call themselves house churches. Some of them might not call them that at all and might not even even know what that is. But but right. here's what I do think you're going to see. Like you're saying, here's what you observe. I mean, these are just the numbers and the and the out. You can you can plainly observe. I would say in almost any major city in America, you see a bunch of churches merging together because they cannot they can't exist, pay their bills, pay their salaries, afford their yeah. building. So you see lots of churches merging with each other. You see uh, a whole ton of studies being done, Pew Research, Barna Research, you know, all these different uh, surveys that have been done to show that the evangelical mainline Protestant churches in America are getting older and older, which means younger people are opting out and leaving. You have the nuns and the duns, people that are just leaving. And again, most of them are millennials, younger people leaving the church. But the thing is, they're leaving church, but they're not leaving God and they're not leaving Christ. 
So what you end up with is a whole bunch of, a whole lot of younger people who are interested in God. They are interested in Jesus. They, but they just know they, they're not interested in the, you know, what's being offered on Sunday morning in those places. So I think you'll see maybe some formal settings of, hey, we're going to meet instead on at someone's house, you know, and we're going to call it something. Um, but you may just see people not calling it anything, but just getting together with their friends, you know, on a Tuesday night to pray together or something. You know what I mean? Yeah. But I think you're going to see, I think you're going to see a shift spiritually. And I think we're already seeing it away from that mainstream thing and more towards something that may be harder to put your finger on uh, and yeah. maybe a little more, organic, a little more natural or whatever. Uh, but yeah, I do think that is what's happening. And I think we're going to just keep seeing more of it. It, it seems like there's kind of, um, I, I don't know. I mean, my, my sense is that uh, like a lot of my peers, they're becoming less and less interested in the idea of church as a place like where you go for goods and services. Yep. Um, and, and more interested in, in the idea of, of being in a community that, that's tied to a place and a people, which doesn't necessarily have to be in a house church. It's, right. This is not a structural yep. issue, yep. but it just, it just inevitably, uh, you know, when, when, when goods and services are kind of like your angle on the market, you got to pay for all that stuff. And oh, yeah. that, that, that gets complicated. Yeah. I just see in general, a lot of younger people, they're tired of a sermon and a song. They're tired of anything that looks manufactured like a performance. Yeah. Um, and, and I think they have a general sense and I think they're right that uh, a spiritual connection and community to God doesn't have to be and probably shouldn't be something that's slick and produced and, you know, uh, a performance. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I, so before we, and I, I want to get into some, some of the content that you've been writing about on a number of these subjects, but before I do, you started in talking about house church kind of emerging from this desire for all the call it tithes, call it generosity, call, you know, funds to go to a local community. Excuse me. And what I wanted to ask was, kind of how how has that fl- one? What was kind of the what what is the birth of that? What does that look like in terms of practice in the community uh, for your group? Um, yeah. and, and you know, d- describe kind of how how you guys are even doing this from a technology perspective, from a method methodology perspective, and what you've seen the impact of that being uh, locally. Yeah, so what we what we ended up doing when we first started the house church with that vision, we communicated that vision to people, and people who resonated with it were like, yeah, that sounds great, and they became a part of it. People just start, kind of found us who, who also were resonating with that. Um, but it's all it was always been on a, a for example, like Wendy and I never, we communicated the vision, but we never said, okay, let's pass the basket now and it's time to put your money in. It was very much, uh, very loose, you know what I mean? Right. It's sort of like, there's an invitation. If you want to, you can. By the way, this is totally built on uh, what Tertullian taught. There's a, a beautiful thing where I found that Tertullian, a very early church father, you know, talked about what the early church did with money. And this is exactly what he said. We, we patterned it totally after this, like, there, there is an offering, but people give only if they want and only if they can, and no one is under compulsion, and they give whatever amount they feel like giving or they can afford to give, and again, it's completely free, but whatever is collected is given to widows and orphans and all that. So that was just our general thing. Um, Wendy and I started a ministry at a motel in Orange County in Santa Ana, California. We, God just started showing us that there was just a whole lot of people living in poverty in Orange County who were a little bit invisible. They were, there's something like, I think at the time, 30, 30 or 40,000 homeless in Orange County, but they weren't the, the, the sort of classical homeless that are like the guy pushing the cart. Uh, these, these were homeless people who are families, you know, to the half of them are families with children. They had some form of income, but it's just not enough income to afford an apartment, you know what I mean, where they could afford to, right. to live. And so they were either living, um, so they had a job of some some income of some kind, and again, not enough. And so they were either living in their car with their kids, or they were living in a motel week to week. So we we discovered, we kind of, honestly, I felt like God just sort of handed us this motel in Santa Ana, literally. And we started serving there, getting to know people there. And that was the main focus of what we did when we started the house church. Um, we would provide. What, what would you guys do there? 
Yeah, yes. So we would provide free groceries once a month. Huh. We would go and buy, you know, groceries and just give them away for free to anybody who needed them. And um, again, all never with the carrot. There's never. It was never right. like a carrot. Like, hey, if you need groceries, first we're going to make you sit and listen to me preach for an hour or something. Yeah. <laughs> no, it was like no, we never did that ever, and I hate that stuff. It's like one of those free cruise things where you got to get sit through a. Uh... Yes. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> So I hate I hate that kind of ministry of the poor where you sort of like hold it against hold it over them. Yeah. So we were just like, yeah, yeah. man, just come, you know, come and take what you need. And then if you want prayer, at the end of the line, if we can pray for you, great. If not, God bless, have a great day. You know. So that was the main thing we did. We did groceries once a month, and then we also started doing every uh, well, eventually every Sunday morning in the back parking lot of that church, there was a church service going on where they served free breakfast and there was a full on a gospel message and they were praying for people and it was every Sunday and that was done in partnership with other churches not other house churches we were the only house church uh, the first uh, the first church that we partnered with was Saddleback Church like no kidding Rick Warren no way that's a house church right well, so, <laughs> in a stadium you know, <laughs> yeah but here's what's really really funny I always I, I was like you know what I realized eventually like the, the the biggest church in Orange County, Saddleback Church, and the smallest church in Orange County, yes. my house, yeah. were partnered together to do this. I love so, that. That's I cool. actually think that's right. awesome. And, yeah, and then other churches sort of discovered it as just they they would each take a Sunday and volunteer. Like, oh, we're going to take the first Sunday, and I'll take the second Sunday, and you take the third Sunday, etc. Until uh, we all just took turns covering it. And nobody owned it. No one tried to control it. Um, nobody, like, I wasn't the Pope of it. It wasn't, like, my thing. We all just sort of let it be whatever God wanted it to be. And we did that for probably 15, well, no, I'm sorry. We did house church for 11 years. Part of that, we probably did that church for about nine years. Wow. Nine or 10 years. And, um, and, and, and it, just, it just ended uh, um, about three or four months ago. Got so, it. Wow. But it went all the way through the whole time, you know, that we were doing house church. That's fantastic. That's fantastic. Wow. Well, Keith, thank you. That that's helpful. Would love to would love to kind of transition a little bit, Stephen. Unless you had another question um, to 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 Jesus Unbound to this book, and I have to I have to read the uh, highly provocative tagline uh, after, which is Jesus Unbound, like liberating the Word of God from the Bible. Um, now, half of our listeners. Um, I've not identified you as a, as a pagan, but, um, no, I'm just kidding. Liberating the word of God from the Bible. So we have a number of questions, uh, and I'm going to let kind of Stephen drive most of this conversation, but Keith, maybe just kind of an intro. What led you, um, what, what can you give us a, a short backstory on kind of what led to the, uh, you know, the inception of, of putting pen to paper on this book? Right. Well, a lot of, um, a lot of it, I think, came from just conversations I would have online. So I blog quite often, and I would post blogs. And, and then on Facebook, mainly, I would get pushback from people when I would write a blog article you know, that would suggest something, which to me isn't controversial. It wasn't controversial to me to say that the Word of God is a person, not a book. Or that, um, for example, that, that the book doesn't point it to the book. Like, the Bible never points us to the Bible. The Bible points us to Christ, and so yeah. uh, what I would and so when I would post things, which again to me are not controversial, uh, and actually are supported by the Bible, people who were, who would would self-identify as people who love the Bible and stand by the Bible would then contradict the Bible and tell me I was wrong, like <laughs> which I thought was really bizarre. It was like this circular yeah. conversation. Like no, I'm affirming what the Bible says. But when I do that, you're telling me that I'm attacking the Bible, but I'm not. I'm just affirming what it actually says. And, and noticing there was this disconnect and how, how, hard, how, how, how hard some Christians pushed against these ideas. Mm. I started to read, and then, and then I flat out had some of these people who would flat out say that they did worship the Bible, and that I should too. And huh. that, the word, yeah, that the Word of God was a book. And that it had some sort of magical properties or something. <laughs> so, so anyway, that's that's when I realized. Well, maybe there's uh, maybe there's a need for a book like this. Hmm. Fascinating, Stephen. Yeah. I'll let you take it away because I I could ask questions, but I know we want to be a little bit structured. Yeah. So, um, I, I mean, yeah, I I enjoyed the book. I read it all. Uh, we've um. 
Andrew and I both did. And there's definitely, there's, there's a few interesting uh, contrasts that you make that I'd, I'd love to sort of unpack with you. One of them you make is that it's just this interesting distinction between living Christ-like or being Christ-like and, and living biblically. Yep. Can you kind of tease that out for us? What are you, what are you trying mm. to get at there? Yeah. Um, so this was another thing that kind of came out of um, a little bit thinking about this and, and conversations I had online with people. But uh, when people, when Christians would say things like um, we need a more biblical world or, um, or something wasn't quote unquote biblical, I started realizing that, well, you know what? Once you start talking about something being biblical, like if all, if that's my only standard, if I just say I want something to be biblical or I want a biblical world or I want a biblical community or I want a biblical whatever. Well, the problem with that idea is that being biblical, uh, you can support things like genocide, uh, polygamy, slavery, um, you know, all kinds of really bad, horrible things. And not only can you use the Bible to to support those kinds of things. Throughout history, that is exactly what people have done, mm, right? They've yeah. used the Bible to say slavery's okay, and genocide's okay, and war is okay, and uh, patriarchy is okay. And Because why? Because there it is. It's biblical. Now, but I think if you start with Jesus, if we start with Christ, if he is our center, if he's our lens, if he's our standard, if we start with him, well, now those things are off the table. No, if I'm starting with Christ— Slavery, genocide, war, patriarchy, polygamy, uh, all of those genocide, those things, no. You can't justify those things if you start with Christ. And that's why I think it's so important for Christians. It shouldn't be unusual to ask Christians to be Christ-like, right? Hmm. And I think, again, that's part of the problem. Um, We just assume certain things that I think are not necessarily the case, that— I, and again, we can get into that a little bit more if you want as, sure. as we unpack it. This is what I'm trying to talk about. What I'm trying to help Christians see in the book is that Jesus, we can't live as we cannot live as Christians as if Jesus never came. Like we have to admit that Jesus coming changed something. His his coming uh, made a difference, and and it's significant the difference that that he made, and that's the difference between something being biblical and something being Christ-like. And so uh, I think that's why, again, if we're going to say we follow Christ, then we we have to actually start with Him. How do you how do you respond when people? Because I, I imagine you've gotten this 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 pushback before, where they say, "Well, you know, Keith, look, how do you get to know Jesus if you don't have the Bible?" Right. Yes. Uh, yes, I've I've totally gotten that uh, all the time. And in fact, I even put there's a whole chapter in the book where I just took yeah. those kinds of questions. And I, I teed I, that one up for you, man. Knock it out. Let's do it. <laughs> yeah. Well, I realized, I realized look, I, I got that reaction so many times. It was like, I better put this in the book. Because sure, if I don't, sure enough, someone's going to read the book, and that's exactly what they're going to be asking. So I was like, I'm going to just yeah. put So, yeah, I mean, I would get that all the time. Like, Keith, come on. You wouldn't know anything about Jesus if it wasn't for the Bible, right? And I was like, well, okay. Um, but here's the thing. Like, I use the analogy of my friend Carlos introduced me to my wife, Wendy. And I'm very grateful that he did, right? That was a wonderful thing. But I, I don't call Carlos every day and tell him how much I love him. And, and I, it's not that I don't appreciate Carlos, but I didn't fall in love with Carlos. I fell in love with my wife, Wendy. And so I'm grateful to Carlos for pointing me to my wife, but yeah. I love my wife. And so again, it's what I was saying. The Bible doesn't point us to the Bible. The Bible points us to Christ. And so if we're really going to be, quote-unquote, people of the book, then let's follow it. It's a map, okay? It's like having a map to a beautiful, amazing vacation spot in your back pocket. And you open it up and you look, oh, look at those beautiful mountains. Oh, look at that gorgeous beach. Oh, look at these amazing restaurants. Oh, look at these amazing shows and entertainment things. Oh, I can hang glide a parachute and ride a helicopter and a zip line. And wow, isn't that great? And I fold it up, I put it back in my pocket, and I never go there. Like the scriptures are pointing you to an experience with a person and his name is Jesus. And so, um, yes, you wouldn't even know about that if it wasn't for the book. Right. Right. But have you done what it says? Have you followed it to its destination? Have you experienced all the things it's telling you it's possible for you to experience? Because if you haven't, all you've got is a relationship with a map and you haven't actually gone to where it's pointing you. And that's my whole 
that's what I'm trying to get Christians to understand. Don't don't have a don't have a Christianity that just goes so far and stops. Because man, if you if you do, you're you're missing out on so much. I love that. And Andrew, you're getting ready to read a quote or something. Do you have a question I you want to go to? Uh, just it's just interesting. I'm I'm if you have another question, you can go ahead. But I, I what I was gonna read, there's this quote um in chapter four, which is called, which I love, it's called the gospel information or transformation. And uh, the, the verse you quote is in John 17, three. Now this is eternal life to know God and his son whom you have sent. And I want to just really quickly read this quote that, that I like. It says, um, uh, if, if having the right information is what Christian faith is about, and what you're saying is just reading the Bible and using that as kind of having the info we need. If that's what Christian faith is all about, just knowing the right info, then having the wrong information is the worst sin of all. But that's not what Jesus is talking about here. Not at all. The word Jesus uses here for, quote, to know in Greek is genosko, a word which maps to the same word used in the Hebrew scriptures for the way a husband knew his wife, quote unquote, knew his wife in a deeply intimate sexual way. In other words, this knowing is less like studying for a test and more like connecting with someone on a physical, spiritual, and emotional level. And the shocking thing is that the person we are urged to know in this way is God himself. And I, mm. I, I, I love that kind of this elevating, which it, it is wild to think we kind of have to repoint here, but it kind of makes sense, like elevating Jesus above all and saying, you know, the, and this isn't exactly on Stephen's question, but, but to your point in knowing Jesus and knowing God, yes, there is information which is helpful, but ultimately if Jesus came and, and he is, you know, he is where we're headed, um, he is the telos, he is the word of God, then it makes sense that knowing him would go beyond kind of having all, all the right information and actually having an experiential faith, an experiential faith, which then leads to, again, a, a deeper knowledge that, that just goes beyond the book. Yeah, absolutely. That is exactly right. You nailed it. Well, you know, what, what gets hard about that, I can imagine, would be uh, like when, when the Bible is a source of information and, and, and it's kind of like that, that, that's your reference for, for the domain of knowledge called spirituality or religion, right? So you go to the Bible whenever you want to learn about God, and, and then the, the primary function is just, it just, it's just a repository of information. You get, you get whatever you need to know, and you're good to go. At, at least you can know you're right. You know what I mean? Like mm. at least you can go back and you can like you can check the you can check the facts. Yes. And and see where it is. But you know, and I think as we lean more into what you're advocating for, that that's one of the sources of anxiety I see in people is like, yes, I, I've I've met Jesus uh, and he was mediated to me through the Bible, but now there's something's happening. And and what what happens then when 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 you you do you feel like you kind of stepped over the ledge and and now. You know, now you, you, how do you know you're right? You can't know you're right. But what, what do you do with that? Right. Well, no, thank you for saying that. Cool. And I, and I try to address that in the book as well. You're right. You put your finger on something that I get it. I understand that it does make Christians, uh, it gives them some anxiety, right? It's sort of like, well, oh my gosh, mm-hmm. well, if I, if you're saying that I can know something outside, not just information, but have an experiential something information outside of what's written, well, what if I get it wrong? Well, I hate to break it to you, but even if all you have is information, guess what? Christians have been getting it wrong for a long, long time. There's 40,000-something denominations all using the same book and who all are convinced that they have the right information and they're doing it, their doctrine yeah. correct and perfect, and they're not wrong about anything. Hmm. They're all convinced that they're right. But guess what? They can't all be right. So even if all we have is the book, we still have the have the possibility of getting something wrong. Um, but but here's what I would say about what, what I'm advocating for. If you have an experience, if you make it about Christ and you don't make it about necessarily information, I think this is the best chance you have of getting it right. Yes, you can still get it wrong, mm. but the best chance you have of getting it right is starting with him and trusting and learning how to trust him and discern his voice and to know him in that deep way. I think if we're ever going to get right, that's our best hope. Mm. But if, yeah. Let me just yeah. say about that I'm too. With let, me, you. let me just say something about that too, though. Um, 
I, I, I have, and this is just for myself, uh, and a lot of it has come through the experience with House Church. Um, I'm less concerned about the information and whether or not I have the right information. Because what I've learned even in my own experience is, like there are things I believe now I did not believe five years ago or 10 years ago. Well, so, but, but you know what has never changed is my connection with Christ. So my connection with Christ has stayed the same. Well, if anything, maybe it's even gotten better. But, mm-hmm. but, but, but that's disconnected from the information that I had. I believe this, but then I believe that. I believe that, but then I believe this. Yeah. But that didn't affect my connection with Christ. And so, and, and, by, and honestly, I hope five years from now, I, some of my other things have, have, have moved on as well. Uh, so I'm not I'm not as concerned about having the right information anymore as I, I think it's more important that I genuinely have a connection with Christ. And I think the information will come and go. I'll learn something. I'll change my mind about something. Uh, my friend Joshua Lawson had a great quote uh, the, the other day. He quoted something. And I love it. He said something like that. He said, I've learned the amazing thing about my worldview. It's always right, no matter how many times it changes. <laughs> Yes. You know what that means? You know what that means? Yeah. I've been, I, I changed my mind about 10 times, but I've never been wrong. Right. Yep. Can you, can you hit the naive? You, you talk about this concept of naive realism towards the yeah. end of the book. And I, I like this term. Um, yeah. And it sounds like this might be a leeway right, right to that. Um, can, can you explain what you mean by that term, naive realism? Maybe expound even a little bit on, on, on what you just mentioned. Yeah. So it's not my, my, I just discovered it. I frankly was listening to a podcast at the other, you know, before I was writing the book and I, and I discovered it myself and I was like, Oh my gosh, this is genius. Uh, and, it, and it kind of deals with the, um, the addiction we have to being right and, and, uh, having the right information. So what my realism looks at is the fact that, um, it's, it's sort of, I think it's connected to what Jesus calls the having a log in our eye. Uh, because we're basically blind to our own error and their own Bias. mistakes. Yeah, it's that, exactly. So naive realism basically has three tenets. One is that you you believe that uh, everything that you believe, that your your opinions that you have, that you only develop them after careful study of. You know, I looked at the I looked at the positive, and then I read the negative, and I read the stuff in the middle, and I thought about it, and I considered it, and then I made up my mind about something. No, you didn't. None of us do that. <laughs> Right? Most of us believe something already, and then we all go read stuff that supports what we already believe, right? Um, it's a confirmation bias. Uh, but yeah. but we don't admit that to ourselves. We, we kind of trick ourselves into thinking, well, I only believe this because I've looked at all the information and I've objectively decided that this is true. So this is why we end up in, in arguments on Facebook all the time, right? Somebody posts something you disagree with, and you go, oh, that's not true, because I don't, I believe something different. So you'll go to a web, you'll Google something, you go to a blog, you'll cut and paste some information that supports what you believe. You'll paste it in the comments, and and you're thinking, well, there you go, I solved the problem. Because all the, all they've got to do is read that very simple thing that I just explained to them, and now they'll believe what I. Well, of right. course they yeah. don't. Yeah, of course they don't. They'll just go and paste something from from a blog that they found that supports what they believe, and they'll, they'll respond to you, assuming that you're going to read that and go, oh, that's why I'm wrong. But, of course, you don't do that. You just go, oh, what an idiot. What, what a moron. So you just assume everybody yeah. who believed like you was an idiot or a moron. Um, and, and the problem was, of course, then we're not actually listening to each other. Mm. We're not actually admitting that maybe I could actually be wrong about something. Um, and so we're really not, not basing our beliefs on being objective and being rational and thinking through everything, right? Um, so, yeah, and then the... the um, yeah, and so, yeah, it's just this whole belief that if anyone disagrees with me, they're an idiot. And what, here's the other problem with that, that way of thinking. Christians, we do this all the time. Uh, this is why, like, when Christians will call each other heretics or something, you know. Well, what they, what the, all they mean is this. You happen to hold a belief that's different from, from something I believe. And so, therefore, you're a heretic. But when you act that way, when you, when you make that kind of a statement, what you're actually saying is this. I am the standard for all truth. I am wrong about nothing. I'm right about everything. And you're wrong about this one thing, and therefore you're, because you disagree with me on this, I'm not wrong, you're wrong, and you're a heretic. But again, talk about having the log in your eye, mm. right? Yeah. Instead of, uh, I think it's on the same the same podcast where I first heard about this night realism, and they were interviewing this guy who's a, um, he's like a, um, 
negotiator or something like that. That's not, that's not the term for it. But basically, he he goes to he goes to once a year he goes to Jerusalem and he sort of sits down with Jew, Jewish representatives and Palestinian representatives and tries to uh, you know find common ground and broker peace. And he's been doing this for like 20 years or something. And interviewed him uh, about Nye realism and, and his experience with it. And he said, you know, in all my years of of traveling to to Israel and sitting down at the table with people, Palestinians and, and Jewish people. He says, I have always, every time I take the trip, I've had people tell me, I want to go with you on your trip. So I can, because I want to, I want to tell those other people why they're wrong. And if I tell them, if I explain this to them, they'll see how they're wrong. And he says, you know, the, you know what I've never heard in 20 years? I've never heard one person say to me, I want to go with you on your trip so that I can sit and listen to the other side and find out the ways that I could be wrong. Yeah. said, actually, until I hear that, we're never going to get anywhere. Uh, and that's yeah, why, yeah. Just assume we're right about everything. I mean, gosh, I've, I've, I've been in so many like conversations and debates and squabbles or whatever over biblical interpretation there where it basically goes like, like the assumption is that, well, you know, the only reason why there's 40,000 denominations is that this, people just don't, they just don't know. People aren't, I mean, if they knew what I knew or, you know, if they were aware of the facts and they had, a, you know, and they were, you know, reasonably rational, then then, then they would come to my conclusion. Um, you know, I, I think of, I think sometimes it also makes us deaf just to, just to the, to the, to the debate in Christianity itself, again, to how in sort of the broad stream of the faith, how you know different congregations make different moves, and yeah, you know, at you know when you when you depending on what move you make with with the Bible, uh, you know other communities or other groups would say, well, no, you know they you know they clearly they're more affected by culture, they're not really trying to live they're not really biblically, yeah, right, or or vice versa. Um, yeah. So I'm cu- I'm curious, how does um. This this whole this whole idea of of, of, of trying to really get it, getting to know Christ and, and letting that be sort of more of the the, the focus of, of our faith, not so much uh, the book of the Bible. How does that um, like shake out practically? Like what what happens then? Like what, what do you how, what do you do? How do you interact with the Bible? Uh, if you have that perspective, and and, the, and then you know what practices have you found that have been uh, helpful in this endeavor? Yeah. So, um, and, and this is something again, probably just in the last four or five years, I've really started to do this uh, as a practice, which is to try to read scripture through the lens of Christ. So it's a it's a Jesus centered hermeneutic, right? Of this is how I read the whole Bible. I read it through the lens of Christ. And by the way, I think this is exactly what the New Testament encourages us to do. I think when Jesus says, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father, or no one knows the Father except the Son, and to whomever the Son chooses to reveal him. Or when John says in the Gospel of John, no man has ever seen God at any time except for Christ, and he came to reveal the Father to us. Um, When on the Mount of Transfiguration, uh, you know, here's, here's Christ glorified, here's Moses who stands for the law, Here's Elijah that stands for the prophets. Peter makes the mistake, which I think flat Bible Christians do, which they have this idea where the whole Bible is equal and flat. Peter makes that mistake, the flat Bible mistake of saying, oh, let's let's treat Elijah, the, the prophets, and Moses, the law, equal to Jesus. And the Father's response is to remove Moses and to remove Elijah and to leave only Christ and say, this is my son, listen to him. Huh. This, is why, this is why Paul says... That he says, to this day, when we read the Old Covenant scriptures, a veil covers our eyes, and there's only one thing that removes that veil, and that is Christ. And so, if we want to clearly read and understand yeah. the Old Covenant scriptures, we have to read it through the lens of Christ, which means it has to start with, you have, you have to learn how to abide in Christ. You need to, it starts with that. And Jesus says, if you, if you don't do that, you can accomplish nothing, right? Apart from me, you can accomplish nothing. So we have to yeah. first learn how to draw near to him, learn to hear his voice, uh, have discernment, and really abide in Christ and allow Christ to abide in us. And mm. the more that we learn how to do that, it makes it much easier then to then read the Old Covenant Scriptures and to see Christ, to see clearly through the lens of Christ, the truth of the, of the Scriptures. Like, now suddenly it 
becomes it becomes life to us, right? And again, this is another thing that scares people when I say things like this, but all I'm doing is quoting the scripture. There's no life in the Bible. Jesus said that. Jesus, mm. Jesus told the Pharisees, you search the scriptures because you think that in them you will find life, but you refuse to come to me and have life. Life is in Christ. Now, mm. the, the scriptures point us to Christ. Again, that's why it's so important to follow the arrow. Where is it pointing? Where is it leading you? To Christ. And once you're in him, you have life. And once you're in him and you're abiding in him, you have truth. He's the truth. He's the life. He's the way. He's He's the one that removes the veil from our eyes. So again, everything I'm saying in the book is, is elevating Christ higher and higher. Now, people sometimes say, when I do that, that I'm diminishing the Bible. I'm not. I love the Bible. I think the Bible's awesome. I the first chapter of my book is how much I love the Bible. But, and I, so I, I think the Bible's awesome. I'm so glad we have it. But I'm telling you, I love Christ a hundred million, ten zillion thousand times more, right? Because he is so far above a book about him. Mm, uh, mm. So it's not diminishing scripture. It's elevating Christ. I love that. I love that. No, that's that's really helpful. Well, Keith, we could probably go on for 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 quite a bit longer, but I would to, to wrap and be sensitive to time. I wanted to I want to give you a space to kind of point our our listeners to what you're doing. Some of your you know make a kind of put a plug out there, not only for the book, but even some of your blogs and and podcasts and other spaces. And we'll do that in a second as we wrap. But just kind of as a sort of final word in, in this conversation, you know, a lot of our listeners. Um, are coming from, or could be in all different stages of a lot of the path that we've talked about. Your path of, you know, starting to ask questions, hearing the gospel in a new way for the first time, coming out of church, maybe coming out of a season of doubt and uncertainty, or maybe coming from a place where they've held the scriptures almost like this, 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 you know, fourth member of the Trinity. And now that they're looking at it a bit different, it's, it's almost tempting. It, 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 they're unclear on what to do. It, it shatters the whole thing. Should I just throw out the baby with the bathwater? <laughs> do I need to move on? Do I need to leave church? This is obviously a journey for all of us, but to kind of condense it, I w- was going to ask you if you were to, you know, in speaking to those people that are maybe in the midst of everything from many little spiritual crises to huge, you know, like my world is being rocked. I don't know where to do, what to do, where to go. In light of what we've talked about today from church house church, that journey, and then even Bible, Jesus, kind of what, what's your word of, of sort of encouragement, advice, um, thoughts on, on folks there? Well, boy, that's not a, <laughs> that's a pretty big question there, man. Uh, <laughs> you know, I just want to go out with a bang. Yeah, yeah. Well, uh, I don't know, man. I, at the end of the day, for me, um, I could let go of a lot of things. I, I can deal with a lot of things of my faith being challenged or turned upside down. And I have, you know, I've, I've gone through all kinds of tests and challenges and wrestling with my, uh, with my faith and things like that over the years. The thing that I can't let go of, and I would encourage people never to let go of is Christ. Um, because, um, I mean, to me, that is where life is. This is, this is where truth is. This is what, this is how we know what the father is like, you know? And, um, and I, and I spend a lot of time in the book talking about how we have very, very good reason to believe that the gospels are accurate. They were written by people who were contemporary to that, to, to Christ in that time period. Um, they are accurate to many, many ways. So I, I wouldn't want anybody to come away thinking that I'm wanting them to doubt uh, at all the gospels or Jesus or anything about that. Um, I think it's okay to have questions, uh, as long as, and I think it's, uh, as long as you understand that you are not your beliefs and your mm-hmm. beliefs are not God. <laughs> so, um, if your, if your beliefs get challenged or rocked or, or shaken, um, that's okay. It should be okay. Uh, but understand again that, that your identity isn't wrapped up in whatever your faith is or your beliefs are. And God isn't defined by or bound, if you will, uh, uh, by those beliefs. He's not bound in a book, and he's not bound in a doctrine, he's not bound in a denomination uh, or in a statement of faith or an atonement theory or many other things. Mm. So, yeah, I would just say it's a good thing to question some of those beliefs that you've held on to for a long time, uh, but I would encourage you never to let go of Christ. Mm. That's great. 
That's that's a great kind of final word. Well, Keith, in pointing, if folks are interested in learning more, if there are people that want to, of course, if folks are you know wanting to dive more into this particular subject, Jesus Unbound, which we'll have a link to for sure in, in the show notes. Um, you also have a, a number of other books, uh, which we can link there. A- any other sort of resources you would point folks to in terms of your work? Uh, yeah, sure. And thank you guys. Appreciate you letting me talk about this and give me a chance to, to share this. So yeah, people want to, to stay in dialogue. Uh, I'm very accessible. So if people want to follow me on Facebook or on Twitter, uh, like Twitter is just at, at Keith Giles, uh, Facebook again, I think it's just, it's Keith A. Giles, uh, on Facebook. And, um, I have a blog, which is my name, KeithGiles.com. I blog on Papios. And uh, I do have a podcast that I do with two other guys who don't agree with me on most things, but that's part of the fun. Nice. Is that we don't have to agree on things, but we still love each other and respect each other. Uh, it's got a, and it's so much fun. Uh, and it's the, the podcast is called the Heretic Happy Hour. Uh, we get to talk to some pretty amazing people. And we do on that podcast, we ask a lot of questions. We, there's, there's no stone left unturned, no cow left untipped. Uh, we, we ask a lot of hard questions and we have fun doing it. Uh, so if people are interested in that kind of stuff, I think they'd enjoy it. Great. And then the, Excellent. Like said, the book, the book uh, Jesus Unbound, uh, is available on Amazon and Barnes and Noble and all, all that stuff. Great. And, and if people want to donate to the, the building fund for your house church, they can just do it on, on your website, right? Uh, that, well, actually, no, I don't have the building fund. <laughs> There is no oh, for that expan- oh, that expansion for the church, which is right, just here. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> exactly. Thanks, everyone, for tuning in. Keith, thanks again for, for taking the time from a McDonald's in El Paso. Really appreciate sure. you just carving out some time here. This has been really helpful, and we're grateful. Um, for everyone checking in, thanks so much. Tune in. We'll be uh, with another guest here in a couple of weeks. Looking forward to, to, to the next one. And again, have a good night, everyone. Thanks a lot.